0: On this episode of the podcast, I am joined by Cadell Last. Cadell is... Fuck, where is his bio? (laughs) Where's your bio, Cadell? Hmm? Cadell, I don't have an updated bio for you, so I'm just going to kind of riff based on what I can find online. So Cadell is an anthropologist and philosopher with an interest in biocultural evolution, big history, and the future of humanity. He works with clients as a Freudian analyst He works at the intersection of psychedelics and therapy. This is a really fun conversation. We talk about Hegelian dialectics, Freudian free association, gender relations, psychedelics, and designing a life worth living. A big thank you to all my paid subscribers. If you'd like to become one of that elite crew, you can go to my Patreon page, patreon.com slash Colin of Zion. Enjoy. It's Colin. Hello, what's up, dude? I'm sorry. I'm late. (laughs)
1: that's okay man yo you you're a savage on twitter (laughs) (laughs) you're a savage i love it (laughs) man you you won you won me over with the cum sock
0: line (laughs) (laughs) it's funny i don't think i've ever oh oh, after i saw that tweet i was like oh we're gonna get along fine. (laughs) thanks man i appreciate it twitter's been fun i've I've gone through different phases with it where i get burned out i actually wasn't on twitter for like four months this past summer starting in the spring just because i felt like i was just wasting my time i wasn't being i wasn't being strategic with it at all and now Mm -hmm. i think i'm just i'm just having fun man what just having fun i can tell yeah (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> i love it man i 100 percent support it what, wait what's your what's your preferred like social media hangout zone where do you feel like you're in your element interacting with people online
1: i guess i'm most in my element on email like um i've really found i spend most of my time right in the last few months in the intellectual deep web
0: mm-hmm. the mailing list there yeah thanks for the reminder i need to get back on that
1: yeah, so I I, I guess I, I Twitter Twitter's not my thing. Inst Instagram, I just uh, when I used to have a, I used to have a I didn't have a cell phone, but I had like a an iPod that I could um, <laughs> use to take. I, I like to to share like images from when I walk around and stuff like that. If I Can see I, a cool I, artwork and street
0: graffiti and stuff. Um, wait, uh, iPods I, have I suppose, cameras. Sorry, iPods have cameras. Yeah. Do you mean iPad or like literally iPods? Literally an iPod. I had an old iPod. I had oh. an old
1: iPod until I lost it. Because I don't have a cell phone. But um That's but so, uh so smart. I suppose I yeah, I do it so I can just like like go get away.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, but like um
0: I suppose I feel most of my element kind of on YouTube and email.
2: hmm
0: So that would be my answer. Yeah, you've got a good, how long have you been running your YouTube channel?
1: So I originally started it when I was a master's student in 2012, 2013. Um, and I did an animated video project with uh, my best friend. Um, and that got some traction. And then I, uh, it was like a pop, it was like a pop channel, pop mm-hmm. science, pop science channel. Mm-hmm. Um, that got some traction. So I got some subscribers there. Uh, then I, then I didn't use it for basically when I started my PhD, I went into withdrawal. Like I just went into myself. I just straight, just doing research. Yeah. And I didn't use it. Uh, but I also felt at that time, like I didn't have the outlets to express myself at the university or like that the university couldn't like, it's not that there was any, any fault of the university, but just, the university couldn't contain how much I had to say, you know. Like, like, I, so, so, I, so I was like, you know what? I've got this channel. I'm gonna restart it back up, and it has been a, it has been a fantastic creative outlet for me to just to 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 to, to get my, to get what I think out there.
0: One of my favorite genres is really, really smart intellectuals shitting on academia, or just like- yeah. That's that, then, then we are we are good friends already we're, we're connecting because, um, we both, we both know Alexander Bard who sort of introduced us. Um, and we had a, we had a phone call, uh, last week, I think. And, and we found, I found some, uh, resonance with the things that you were talking about. It You were like using the methods of both Hegelian dialectics and then, uh, Freudian free association, yep. and you were talking about them in the context of uh, designing your life and the things that you were trying to create. Now, you talked about this sort of triad, this triadic structure of the sort of ma- maybe the major gravitational poles that people find themselves in. So it's, it's sort of the arts, it's philosophy, and what was the third one? Religion. Religion. Yeah, art, philosophy, religion. I said, we should, yeah, let's re- let's record a podcast because I, I wanted to kind of dive into these topics a little bit deeper. So before we go down that rabbit hole, why don't, Cadell, why don't you just introduce yourself? Who are you? What do you do? And what is most top of mind for you right now? Who am I? I guess most, the easiest way to
1: describe myself is that I've I found myself in philosophy, so if in this in this triad of philosophy, religion, and art I, I most gravitate towards philosophy, I suppose because I have always been interested in humans and language and spiritual development, and um, I'm interested in what the greatest thinkers our species has ever produced have to say and and i I want to. I want to be deeply in touch with that tradition because I want my speech to be coming from a similar level of sophistication mm-hmm. um, and I want to be able to understand how best I can express myself while I'm alive and and to build uh, an intellectual engagement with the world which is in touch with my real life and the fact that I was born and I'm going to die. And I'm, 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 you know, I'm, I'm here and look how weird this is. And, and I want to be in constant awe. I want to be in constant perplexity and questioning about what the heck this is. And I want to share that passion with as many people who, who also feel that. Mm-hmm. So that's that's who I am, I guess, at the moment. And what's at the top of my mind at the moment is kind of, I suppose, uh, this intersection between, this might sound like a weird connection, but the intersection between psychedelics and psychotherapy because that's kind of what I'm working on at the moment primarily. So it's at the, t- it's at the top of my mind. And um, I'm interested in learning... The methods of psychoanalysis and psychotherapy. um, And I want to make sure I have a good understanding of them so that I can apply them in a new context, which I think our culture is going to be confronting in the next decade, which is the use of psychedelics for symptoms and for addictions and for existential problems. Because my basic principle is that You know, the talk therapy and the social integration are more important than the psychedelic experience. That the psychedelic experience is a tool that we can use to connect with the deepest layers of self, but it doesn't do the work of all of the practical affairs that you need to get together in this world. That it doesn't take that away, it even deepens the problems there. Um, And I have, I have also a deep personal relationship to this process because when I opened myself up with psychedelics, I was kind of alone
2: Mm.
1: and, and I didn't have a strong network and I didn't have basically a network of people who I could rely on and open up with and, and, and share my, you know, that even thought that this was a relevant thing for me to be talking about or doing. So, or that could understand what had happened to me and, and what I, what I had, what I, where I had found myself. So um, I just, I just want to make sure that as our culture opens up to these substances, we're also approaching them with the most maturity and the most responsibility possible.
0: What was your first experience with psychedelics? What was your, what was your context that you found that you found them in? Uh, so yeah, cool. My first,
1: so, okay, so I should preface it by saying, just like many people in our, in our culture, um, I did have, you know, two or three psychedelic experiences in recreational context as like a late teen. And I wasn't thinking about them in a philosophical or a spiritual way. I was just kind of messing around with friends and like, I didn't even think much of it. You know, uh, so I don't consider those my first psychedelic experiences, although of course they do open me up in a significant way to psychedelics. It was really in my late 20s, 29, 30, where I saw a TED talk about psychedelics and I was immediately fascinated from a philosophical and scientific perspective about like the mysteries of the mind. So I was, you know, I feel like there's, two major routes by which people get to psychedelics, which is either the trauma route, which is like, I'm suffering, um, something's, or I'm suffering with something in my life and I'm looking for help. Mm -hmm. Um, and then the other route is kind of like a exploratory fascination of the mind and like metaphysical mysteries and like, you know, what is the mind and stuff like So that was more my first sort of inroads was like, I was interested in like the metaphysical dimension. And, you know, I read a bunch of stuff about it, watched like a ton of Terrence McKenna videos and, you mm-hmm. know, Alan Watts and like, just like, okay, like getting sort of like feeling out. Like I read a bunch of also some phenomenological texts on it and stuff. Uh, but then I found myself in my, for my first proper experience, I found myself in a church in the Netherlands, which is enough information for, For those of you who know the context of psychedelic churches in the Netherlands. Uh, And uh, it was in, you know, some obscure rural church in the Netherlands. Uh, And uh, then they had had a serious ayahuasca practice going on. And it was integrated with indigenous culture, African, um, Brazilian culture, and Christian, Portuguese culture. Mm. And it's kind of like a mixture of those three cultures because of the history of the organization. Is it Santo Dime? Yeah, that's right.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and um, man, the first on contact, like it was like I use the metaphor of a black hole. It, it's like it's like approaching an abyss. It's like approaching this blackness, this darkness, which seemed to stretch the space-time continuum in such a way as that time didn't make sense. And it's like, you're gonna fall into this. And you're gonna, you're gonna be gone. And, and I just let go. Mm. And I was just in love.
0: Mm. Wait, and, so uh, I, I've never been to a Santo Dime practice. But um, from how I've heard it described, you are sort of an active participant, both in the sacrament, but also in the the hymns as well. Yeah. Yeah, so they keep the
1: newbies on the peripheral. Okay, but like they have a center where people are like going mad with music and like they're playing beautiful music and and songs and dancing and you know it goes on for like twelve hours and they're playing straight nonstop like just you know and it just leads to this huge effect you know the effect of the music and the dance and the the architecture and the everything right like all the set and setting matter you know. You know, it's it's way different than like goofing around on some mushrooms at 18 with your friends at your like buddy's basement. You know, like we don't even know what you're doing. You know, yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, this context was transcendent in itself, and the the symmetry. You know, you become you become overwhelmed by the symmetry of the phenomena which you are both co-creating and participating in and how improbable of an order this is and out of all the possible configurations of substance or whatever the fact that you find yourself here in this rhythmical perpetual motion machine you know <laughs> that's just that's just pulling you into a transcendental center of being and 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 it's just you don't even need anyone else to confirm or deny it. it is it speaks for itself i don't need to proselytize i don't need to you know go around with a bible it's it's just what is right now and and it's fantastic and you know and at the same time for newbies which i I was definitely in this category they have a larger peripheral Where you can go and lay down, and they have blankets, and they make sure that you can just sort of be with the in itself of the experience. Um, You know, because I think for a lot of people who do psychedelics for the first time, they're going to be taken to a very vulnerable, a very intimate space. Um, And to me, it's kind of like going back to the womb, kind of. Mm -hmm. And you know, you're like back in, like, you just want to be curled up at a ball. And you just want to be with the in itself of the experience, and you don't want to be dancing and moving around. Although, you know, that's also something that is, you know, very much appreciated appreciated at the same time.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Okay, so let's maybe let's maybe fast forward a bit in time. To uh, I want to hear about the relationship between your um, philosophical work psychoanalysis, and psychedelics. What are, how do these sort of three things intersect? Right. Well, so I guess
1: the starting point is that I was brought to philosophy because of the limitations in my scientific worldview. Mm-hmm. Um, and specifically the place of subjectivity, um, specifically problems of mind and consciousness, where I just didn't feel like... I, bet, I basically just felt like I had reached a dead end with what I could achieve from a scientific point of view, and I found it increasingly constraining and limiting to continue to, to basically self-limit myself with that, with that field of thinking.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And at the same time, not opposed to, because in the end, it's just a method. You know, it's 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 a method of of understanding nature. Um, so I was brought to philosophy basically because I was interested in thinking thought itself, and thinking the frame within which we approach a certain horizon of history or horizon of being or something like this, and and also interested in. Hot, like basically problems from the perspective of consciousness and social history. Like, so the example I always say is like, instead of thinking about the Big Bang in itself, thinking about the fact that there are conscious social entities that are interested in the origin of time. Mm. So, which I think is equally important and somehow not in the conversation of mainstream physics and that is important because we're creating machines that are recreating the conditions of the origin Mm
2: -hmm.
1: so here on this planet now so i'm very interested in the way in which the subject is entangled with the object the way in which the subject is entangled with the thing in itself And that this entanglement is the becoming of the thing in itself to use the Hegelian terminology. So the reason why that was such a smooth transition for me was because my original interest in science was in the technological singularity, um, Ray Kurzweil and transhumanism and stuff like that, or at least that was one of my main interests. And so the products and technologies of science in this worldview are very much something that we are co-creating and a part of, and which will feed back into our very nature. Mm -hmm. So for me, viewing science as this very human activity, which has ontological implications, not just a discovery of ontology, but a co-creation of it was something that, you know, really some certain philosophies I felt were, were necessary to sort of gain a more sophisticated framing of what was happening in the 21st century or what could potentially happen in the 21st century. Mm
2: -hmm. So
1: that was my first inroads to philosophy. And then my first inroads to psychoanalysis were kind of related to, I guess, problems of trauma basically and negativity. So not only was I interested in sort of subjectivity and how subjectivity was framing the world and thought itself, um, but also aware that many psychology developmental models and creativity models seem to me to be too simplistic to the real of human life. And oftentimes, I think, affirmative positivist projects which were not really concerned with the messiness and the negativity at the heart of what I felt were human family dynamics and sexual dynamics and Mm -hmm. specifically those two dynamics, I suppose. Mm -hmm. Specifically, the relationship between the parents and the child and the relationship between lovers. Mm -hmm. And it seemed to me the more I went into that point of view the more i thought that the way the world was constructed was kind of from the point of view of lovers and parents and offspring and that that was kind of the most real thing like that like asking deeply where did i come from why am i here i couldn't ever i couldn't ever rationalize a way to escape the fact that I was born from other human beings and that I was somehow structurally implicated in the continuation of that process through deep feelings of intimacy and love. Mm. Um, And the way in which language mediates both those processes seemed to me to be understudied and underappreciated in the sciences, but very rich in the analytic material. And, you know, when I compared when I compared and contrasted the way cognitive science and, and institutional psychology relate to the subject, it felt very dry, it felt very flat,
2: mm-hmm.
1: it felt very depersonalized, it felt very inhuman almost, whereas when I read the original Freudian texts, it was like, wow. Um, The way he's starting his analysis and the types of phenomena which are catching his attention are really quite profound. Um, Like he specifically starts off by saying that the relationships he's interested in are the, the bond between a mother and a child and the bond between devoted love partners and the way in which that in the way in which those forms of consciousness operate, which is like this hypnotic consciousness. And he, you know, like the baby hypnotized by the mother, you know, and that the, the, the most intimate and the most precious forms of our consciousness, which is the starting position for all of us, is this very hypnotic trance like form of consciousness and the more i went into that the more i felt like well this is an interesting way to view ideology Mm -hmm. and this is an interesting way to view deep emotional entanglements um and this is a way in which to view the catastrophes of my own speech in love relationships Mm you know so the deeper i went into that the deeper i i i wanted to know and 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 then i just i i went further down that rabbit hole and all all the while that was happening i was also exploring and experimenting with my own mind with with psychedelics um so that's sort of how and and i guess the psychedelics kind of opened me up to even start these investigations, Mm
2: -hmm.
1: if that makes sense. Because I could have, it would have been the path of least resistance if I just stayed nestled in a certain scientific institutional frame, which was well-supported and well-funded and well sort of, you know, seen within, within, within the funding bodies and within the institutions that I was, I was making a living, you know, but in the end, my initial drive and impulse in the academy has always been first for, for, for truth. I had my own truth drive, and that was, you know, from 19 or 18, I had sort of walked into a certain, you know, desire to deeply know about human beings. And I never sort of deviated from that path. And the further I went up the academic ladder, the more I got entangled in like bureaucratic insanity instead of truth searching. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it, it at the same time, you know, the choice was kind of already made for me that I wasn't going to be able to censor myself
0: for bureaucratic pragmatism. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Where do you fall on the question of Kurzweilian transhumanism now? How do you relate to that meme? Right. Yeah. So I want to say, like,
1: I am aware that, like, Kurzweil's kind of a meme. Mm-hmm. Um, however, when I, but I also want to pay my respects to Kurzweil and I, and I want to, I want to sort of, you know, give him the respect I think he deserves because I think that his quest has always been authentic. And I think that his openness with his quest on a personal level is something very admirable and something not seen very often among scientists. How open he is with his emotional heart is very rare among scientists. Um, Specifically, he's not shy about saying that his relationship with his father is a huge driver and motivation for him. And also his own desire for sexual exploration and experimentation is something that's a huge driver for him as well. And he's, 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 he's in that sense, I have a tremendous amount of respect for him. Um, and I think the way in which he approaches um, specifically issues of sexuality and the singularity is near um, is very interesting and, and is worth reading. Mm. Um, so I want to say that to preface it. However, I guess my criticism, um, not necessarily like specifically with him, but like kind of with the culture, is that it does come from a certain bias because most of the theorists are coming with a background in the physical sciences. So because they're coming from a background in the physical sciences, I do think that they're oftentimes philosophically naive and anthropologically naive. And and spiritually naive and that, but that's a general tendency among science. And that's kind of why I, again, I'm not against science, but I kind of found myself gravitate towards philosophy was because I, I I was originally motivated by questions of ultimately an anthropological and a philosophical nature. And I just thought science was the best tool for it when I was young, Mm if I could say it like that. Um, Mm -hmm. So I think that basically what I'm trying to say is that my view on the technological singularity is that it's an incredibly fascinating idea that has real ontological effects and consequences. Like for example, irrespective of Kurzweil's metaphysics, whether he's right or wrong, um, his ideas have opened up a feedback loop whereby technology companies are actually trying to build the artificial intelligence which he profits Prophets uh, that he 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 prophesizes will emerge. So uh, he's kind of like he's kind of like making his own predictions true through his own historical agency. Right. So he's like kind of writing the future. He's only, he's kind of writing his own future, um, mm-hmm. and trying to and trying to actualize it in a feedback loop, which I think is super interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, you know. But at the same time, I guess what I, what I hope to add to the conversation in, in, in my life is um, a, a way to really think about the way in which all of these technologies kind of emerging on our horizon are going to change our human life, love, sex, how, it, how we approach death, um, how we build communities, um, how we think about political and economic organization—all of these types of topics are under theorized in the technological singularity community, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. So that's sort of where I situate myself.
0: Mm. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, okay, let's go to let's go back to to, to Hegel. Um, one, one thing I heard you in another conversation talking about. Um, the the sort of fruit you've gained from um, Hegel and Freud specifically, the fruit you've gained from the, the, the analytic methods, the methodologies that they've introduced um, rather than just rather than getting hung up on the, you know, the, the histor- historical figure in and of yeah. themselves. It's like, what, what are the, what's sort of the method that they are yeah. communicating that can be applied as sort of the process unfolds. Right. Um, so How how do you think about, well, maybe you can talk a little bit about uh, Hegel's dialectics um, and how that is um, how you apply that in your, in your sort of your current questions and and the things that you're currently thinking about.
1: Right. So I guess what I want to emphasize is that like I don't want to become the type of philosopher which is sort of like um, impenetrable because there's a certain sort of advanced literature with which you're familiar, and then it kind of makes you sort of, I don't know, separate or cut off from like normal discourse or like popular discourse, if that, like at the, at the same time, you know, but at the same time interested in truth. So, and not just, you know, doxo or popular opinion. So I focus on method as a way to sort of get around this sort of danger or limitation that can befall some philosophers. Um, The reason why I focus on method is because it's not necessarily linked to any one thinker, but it's kind of a tool that once you know it, you can kind of apply it and go have fun right? It's kind of the same thing with the scientific method. So like once you know the scientific method, like, like, for example, when I did my master's research project, I was basically using the scientific method to test a hypothesis of natural selection. So it's something that you can sort of like go run around on an island and, you know, collect data and test a, hypo- test a hypothesis. And, and that has its utility. Um, with the dialectical method, basically what you're doing is, is your, it's, it's you're studying the historical process of logic itself mm. so that's why in one of hegel's famous books called the science of logic it's not it's not like the science so like science of physics science of biology science of chemistry this is science of logic itself and of course logic is something you use to even set up science so when you're studying logic itself you're sort of studying the way in which arguments and positions are formed and how they interact in um, modes of opposition, contradiction, antagonism, and so forth. So once you sort of have a basic understanding of dialectical structure, you can then go and have fun analyzing logical form as a historical process, not as a Platonic category.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So, like, in Plato, you have logical form as, like, this eternal category. You know, the idea, the perfect idea upon which temporal finite entities are reflected or something like that. Mm-hmm. But instead, you're studying logical form as this process of actualization. It's kind of like the imminence of the concept. So, the the, the basic structure is kind of like, you have, a, you know, the common, the common use you'll see in textbooks is thesis-antithesis-synthesis. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, probably the more advanced under, understanding is abstract-negative-concrete. So it's basically the way in which a certain abstract form is always coupled with a negativity because it's not a perfect form. Mm. So there's always going to be contradictions in any logical proposition. So any logical proposition is going, so you you assume, but you. so that's the assumption you make. The assumption you make is that there are no perfect logical forms,
2: mm-hmm.
1: that every logical form is imperfect and is um, riddled by its own potential negativity, which means basically its own failure, you know, like that the, the logical form isn't going to exist forever,
2: mm-hmm.
1: you know? So... How this appears on the on the horizon is 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 kind of um, productive and generative of new thinking. So, like for example, I became retroactively aware that when I was studying as a scientist, I was interested in evolutionary theory, and that the motor of my engagement with evolutionary theory was a negation of religion. So you see how the opposite like so basically I have an abstract I have an abstract proposition of trying to explore evolutionary theory and it's always going to have its negative or its opposite which is somehow in contradiction or antagonism with my form mm-hmm. but that that very contradiction or antagonism is a motor to new knowledge right so for example the crucial understanding of The concrete universality that Hegel gets at with the development of logic is basically that when you have a large-scale historical antagonism in logical form, that the processing of this antagonism will lead to the death of both identities. So in other words, so I took that as a clue. So I was like, if evolutionary theory in the sciences is becoming a metaphysical framework for the sciences, And if this presents a historical social antagonism with religious practitioners and religious theologians and so forth, that there has to be a way in which these contradictory forms annihilate themselves in some other identity. Mm. So there's a way in which both are kind of lacking and that through an engagement with their contradictions, I could think something different. You know, because I also wanted to sort of you know, escape you know new atheism and you know the type of secular scientism which which was the context of my own intellectual development. Mm-hmm. You know, so I felt the dialectical method was, but it, the, the, the use the utility of such a way of thinking is really uh, really vast. like like the, I, I, so to put it in context of wh- of how I find it most useful today, um, would be in like the, um, the contradictions and antagonisms between man and woman or the contradictions and antagonisms between parent and child.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: In, both, in both relationships between man and woman and parent and child, there's a type of dialectical opposition, which is working itself out logically. Um, but oftentimes people reify their identities as on one side, like in opposition to the other, so like, for example, like men's rights movements or very far, you know, very, very manosphere-centric ideologies versus feminism and very femme-centric idealizations and so forth. And of course, men and women are both imperfect, ridiculous entities. You know, so, so, so there's a huge contradiction between the two that's trying to process itself. And when the images between man and woman process themselves, they do lead to a third entity which is different than both of them, which is a baby. So literally, literally the dialectical machinery is working itself out logically between you know our, 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 our sexuated species itself. You know, and, and, and that's something that of course Plato was aware of, but I don't think that Plato really solved the problems that he raised in the symposium. When it comes to the desire and the the love problems between man and woman, so it's something that really, you know, it's something I I, I I'm thinking a lot about
0: right now. That's great, and the um, I I think this is actually a good transition point to talk to to start to talk about Freud, uh, because he's like he's he seems like such a divisive figure. It's like people people either. Um, want to throw out everything you know that Freud said because he got things wrong or you know or he sort of held up as a genius but like where's the where's like the in between in between point like one thing i heard you say is like there, all there you things, go like freud's mistakes like he 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 fucked up in, in the right direction because something was re- revealed by the mistakes that he made
1: well the interesting thing like the interesting thing about freud is that like from the very start of his career, he is interested, he's interested in a problem which had not previously been seen as problematic by um let me say, like which had not been seen as problematic internal to the scientific universe. Mm-hmm. Um, and that problem was basically the mind's relationship to the body
2: mm.
1: like and not so he he was originally interested in not the way in which the body affects the mind so like for example i like, like for example that would be the way traditional classical medicine medicine and um you know and 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 what would be the main the like neurology he was originally trained as a neurologist or a biologist you know, the way in which neurology and biology at the time, and still really to this day, if you look at the, like, and contemporary mental health is a mess. Mm. It's a mess. It's, it's, it's actually a crime what's going on in contemporary psychology, in my view. But the way in which science implicitly, because of its metaphysics, its unconscious metaphysics, approaches the subject is always from the lens of biological reduction, like like there's some biochemical mechanism, or there's some neurological pattern which is causing your dysfunction.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And, and I and I and Freud basically questioned this. He he questioned this because because he saw that there were people who had neurotic and hysterical symptoms which had no biological correlate or no so, there was nothing physically wrong with them. Mm. There was nothing physically wrong. There was a ment- There was something in their mind which was going wrong. So, And he applied a method to go deeper into that possibility, which is free association. So basically it's instead of censoring what you say, you need to be able to open yourself up to speak exactly the contents of your mind as they appear and to follow that chain of logic as deeply as you can and as faithfully as you can and usually what he found was that you would find a symptom connected to a, what I would call a, an emotional excitation in the subject's past. And that emotional excitation in the subject's past was at the time too contradictory to integrate in the pragmatic coordinates of the subject's identity. Mm-hmm. So it was repressed. Mm-hmm. So basically you have this built, like as the ego builds up its identity, it has to repress contradictions in order to function. Mm -hmm. And so that becomes reified in the subject because oftentimes um, uncovering those symptoms could disrupt the subject's familial universe. So So usually if you spoke truly, or if you spoke freely, free association, you would, you would dislodge the symptom in your partner, or you would dislodge the symptom in your mother, or your father, or your child. So there's a way in which we have to guard our symptom and remain pathological in a bad way, <laughs>
2: mm-hmm.
1: in order to keep the social order together
0: yeah I, I read somewhere about Freud. I forget where I read this, but um he started to uncover a lot of a lot of his female clients were talking about childhood sexual abuse and Freud he was also embedded in a particular social structure too, and it was connected to the elite of his society and by giving too much credence or digging too deep into these. Um, experiences that women were talking about would dislodge his like his own personal, um, I don't know, security or standing within the social structure that he found himself in. That was actually benefiting him in a lot of ways. Yeah. I mean, if you're brave enough to confront that. Yeah. if If you're brave enough to confront
1: that, it, I mean, it can really turn you into a mature and, 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 and a mature individual who has a, very deep perspective on the darkness that is underlying our social structures mm-hmm. um, but at the same time, what really got him into the biggest trouble was that basically the hypothesis that it had to do so we have a lot of ideology today that says we need to talk about embodied cognition
0: You're right
1: right that that's a common buzzword,
0: yeah,
1: but when now, what Freud would call is, he would call that libidinal body,
2: mm-hmm.
1: like the body is a sexual body. That's that's and and that got him into a lot of trouble, because mm-hmm. basically his theory, and this is I think you know mostly validated today, which is that the ego and the the neocortex of our mind, where all of the advanced cognition is happening it has a sort of inhibiting, censoring relationship to the more primitive drives of our mind. Mm-hmm. It has, it ha- there's a dialectical contradiction between the, between the, in the default mode network itself of the brain. Mm-hmm. So in the default mode network, you have this front, frontal area lit up and this central region in the back lit up and connected. And there's a dialectical contradiction between the two of these parts of the default mode network mm-hmm. to put it in the, in the contemporary jargon. But um, basically, the abstract linguistic part of our mind is in a tension with the libidinal drives of the body, Mm. Mm -hmm. to put it in in Freudian terms. And and what that means is that the intellectual... Freud did not like philosophy. Uh, And he did... Basically, because he felt that the philosophers didn't have a theory of their own unconscious. The philosophers didn't have a theory of their own mechanisms of repression. And that they were m- mostly just these disembodied minds that get lost in a realm of ideas that have no connection to the real problems of human beings.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And that's why the philosophical precursor of Freud is seen as Nietzsche.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Because, because Nietzsche was very much uh, an individual who wanted to think the overman and he wanted to think the, the real of the body, and he didn't want to get lost in ideas in a different world.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, So this, this is the bridge connecting philosophy and psychoanalysis. Um, many people, many people see, see it that way. Um, and Freud himself was a little bit hesitant to read Nietzsche because he didn't want to bias his own discoveries in psychoanalysis mm-hmm. because he felt that Nietzsche had, in some sense, discovered the unconscious philosophically. You know, so, basically, Freud got himself into a lot of trouble because he identified the way in which the ego defends itself against truth. And what happened was a lot of egos didn't like it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's like... That they're hugely resistant to it. And he even predicted that that would happen. And the institutions around psychoanalysis themselves became egotistical and psychology itself became egotistical. And I see it today in contemporary psychology is, is egotistical. Yeah. So the, the way in which egos, like I don't, from my point of view, in terms of method, I don't, see a, I don't see a meaningful difference, or I, sorry, rather, I don't see a meaningful contradiction between scientific method and psychoanalytic method. I see a contradiction between scientific egos and psychoanalytic method. Mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: But scientific method and psychoanalytic method, I think, can purely coexist in a harmonious relationship. I don't see a contradiction between the two of them. But what I do see is that the implicit, the implicit metaphysics of science gets disrupted by psychoanalysis because of the way psychoanalysis treats language. Because language and intellect is always in relationship to the libidinal body and the drives of the body.
0: Mm-hmm. When you said earlier that you you feel like what's happening in the mental health arena is a crime. Can you explain more on that? What, what, what's, yeah, happening? Like, what's happening right now? Well, I think if I was to summarize it as simply as possible,
1: um, <laughs> uh, there's a huge, um, we have a huge problem with confronting the fact that we have emotions and we have a lot of negative emotions
2: mm-hmm.
1: and we have to learn how to be with negative emotion. Um, And we have to learn to develop the maturity and the sophistication to be the types of subjects that can actually hold spaces of intense emotional negativity.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: And I would say that the, that what I see in the approaches of cognitive behavioral therapy and, 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 and uh, you know, the pharmaceutical industry to name the two biggest players are basically attempts to rationalize away negative emotion and Mm -hmm. to, Um, and to suppress negative emotion. So you're depressed, take some antidepressants. What you're doing with these methods is you're literally shutting down the drives of the body.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: So you're shutting down sex drive. You're shutting down appetite. You're shutting down your food drive. You're shutting down your sex drive. You're shutting down your curiosity drive. You're shutting down all your drives. Because to actually deal with the real human being with all of its weird drives requires an ability to have a mature relationship to intense emotional fluctuations.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and so we repress that. So the, with the antidepressants and all the pharmaceuticals, we try to numb that and we have an epidemic with that. Um, then we have cognitive behavioral therapy, which tries to rationalize that, think positive thoughts, use your ego to wish for, to, 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 to will, will yourself out of depression with positive thoughts, open up a positive feedback loop of positive thinking, mm-hmm. you know, and you'll get yourself to a better place. You, you know, that, th- this, this type of approach to <laughs> what we are is just a, it's a denial of the unconscious.
0: Mm-hmm. it's a denial of the unconscious right yeah to me there's not to me there's not a contradiction between um between having a will to i mean either intelligence or transcendence which having achievable uh or or setting goals and working towards them and also riding the wave of positive and negative emotion like we're, we're constantly in a state of transition constantly in a state of flux and uh I mean, it's no, it's no easy feat to be able to sit and observe negative emotion. It's fu- no. it's fucking hard. It's really, really hard. Yeah, um, that's 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 what the defenses are about. Yeah, because it's it's like
1: and like you see it for example, like like there's some funny like um, I, I found a good joke book at the Freud Museum in London. That mm-hmm. this joke book was uh, there's one of the pages of the joke book said um, there's two guys talking and one guy says to the other guy my marriage counselor is getting a divorce.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Like, there's this is paradox of self-reflectivity where like you have like a depressed doctor giving antidepressants. Right. Or you have like an obese doctor giving, you know, some health advice, eat your fruits and vegetables. <laughs> you know, but he's he's obese. Right. You know, like there's a way there's a way in which the way in which we approach the body is as like a fixed image,
2: uh-huh.
1: like you have this image of a stomach, you have this image of a brain, and then you learn about the object, but you don't know what it's like to be with your stomach for 24 hours.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Like be with your stomach as a living body, as a living entity, as a living process for 24 hours. What's that like? hmm to be with your stomach, to have a stomach, to have a penis.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: Right. Yeah. You can learn about the. You can see the picture of a penis. You can say, "Oh yeah, sex education." You put a condom on a banana. <laughs> you know that like, you you or you see the picture of the penis. This is oh, there's a blood flow here and it gets erect and has testicles. You see that you learn about all the science of it. But what's it like? Mm-hmm. What's it like to be a 13 year old boy going through genital maturation? How does that affect the mind?
0: Mm-hmm. How do we, Cadell, how do we solve gender relations? <laughs> no,
1: no, no. Get out of here, get out of here. Re- reframe the
0: question. <laughs> solve it for, right now. Right, so it, it's, so it's, there, there's here, here, here's,
1: here's the thing. That this is this is something that I've sort of come to in 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 various conversations because I've also written a book called Sex Masculinity and God with two other guys.
0: I have a fixed ideal of what gender relations should be, and I need you to help me get there. Okay, okay. <laughs> so so
1: like I've been so I was interested in so I was interested in not as a side note but like as a preamble to the answering this question. I've been thinking about this for a long time for a few years deeply. Um, you know, because of my own effective catastrophes, of course. <laughs> Primarily, you know, yeah. like, like you, you become aware. through lessons. Yeah. You're like, whoa, this is a mess. Yeah. And I'm a mess and I don't know what the hell to do with myself. <laughs> right. So, and I think, and, and I think that that is a basically a universal, you know, problem that, that men and women face is what do I do with my sexual energy? And of course in the past, this was largely taken care of by religious institutions and traditional family structures. You know, you wouldn't have to necessarily think about it too deeply. It would just happen as you, you know, as the social body processes you,
2: right.
1: you know, um, now it's a individual, it's an issue of individual responsibility mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> you know? yeah. and, uh, and we're in like a neoliberal, we're in a neoliberal marketplace of sexual dynamics. Yeah you know, where you're commodified and you're, it's so image driven and um, so, so superficial. Um, You know, it's, it's, it's an, it's, it's its own epidemic. You know, so I started thinking about this and that's why I wrote the Sex, Masculinity and God book. What I would say is that, of course, the, the, the deep problem is that, and this is, this is a psychoanalytic problem is that Thought, thought, and language doesn't know what to do with the excitation of the body in that state. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: So like when you first start masturbating or when you first have sexual energy, uh, thought and and like, and then you interact with another human of the opposite sex, Mm -hmm. you know, especially when you're learning the ropes of how to interact with the other sex. Thought and language doesn't know what to do. It gets, it, 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 it doesn't know what to do with the the level of excitation which arises in that situation. The body gets extremely excited. It's right. not a norm, it's not your, like when your body's not sexually aroused and you're around another guy or you're around, if you're a woman, you're around another woman, all heterosexual assuming and stuff. Uh, your body isn't sexually excite, excited. So you're, you're thinking and you're, language capacity is just operating as it normally would operate mm-hmm. but then when you're in the first situations where you're becoming libidinally engaged with the other other sex you have to you have to learn how to bring thought and language into a type of comfortable discomfort
2: mm-hmm.
1: with the excitation which the ex- excitations which are emerging Mm
2: -hmm.
1: between the two now because thought and language ultimately don't know what to do with the energy and there's no symbolic solution to the energy so there's no Mm -hmm. there's no symbolic there's no symbolic formula like like uh like physicists who try to come up with a mathematical equation for understanding certain phenomena Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. uh, like oh we have this formula we solve this how this planet moves or how, how these galaxies form, whatever, there's no symbolic formula, which can, as it were, resolve the phenomena of the symbol of the sexual relationship. Right. So because of that, um, people usually use simplistic equations, which break. So the one, right. I found the one
0: Uh and right. I found the one. Yeah. This is symbolic, symbolic, uh, answer to the formula. Is the it's,
1: it's it's an attempt to represent the problem yeah which is that you're two mm. like' I'm, t- I'm two <laughs> yeah and I really want to be one
0: right
1: like I would really like like and think about the actual bodily form that this is something Plato would never think you know this is something Plato would never write but I think it I think in a repressed way he wrote it uh-huh. in, in a repressed way but he wouldn't think it directly it's too traumatizing <laughs> but but if you actually think the bodily form of the sex act,
2: mm-hmm.
1: uh, you are trying to become one in a very weird object,
2: mm-hmm.
1: a very weird form that is, you know? Yeah. So yeah. Um, you're trying to become one. Of course you don't. And of course we all know, like, it's like you go up to someone on the street and be like, do you become one when you have sex? No, obviously. I'm still here. You know, it ends, Mm -hmm. you know, but nonetheless thought and speech don't know what to do about it. Mm -hmm. So, um, in that sense, what I'm trying to say is that, um, it's not, it's, it's, the entire way in which the sexual deadlock is framed needs to be rethought. Um, which is that first and foremost, an other human cannot complete you. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: Another human, it doesn't matter. And that's good. Like that's another thing is like the thing that you thought was negative is actually positive Mm -hmm. because you don't want to be one because then you wouldn't be, you wouldn't get a chance to live. You wouldn't, you wouldn't be living. Mm you wouldn't even be alive. Like, it's it's, it's ultimately a desire to die, you know? And that's that's what Freud discovered with the death drive, but didn't formulate quite properly. But basically, he studied the erotic drive, what we call eros, you know, he was studying the erotic drive for decades. Because it's also important to study chronologically how discoveries were made. Like, and this is irrespective of the field. It doesn't have to be psychoanalysis. Whatever field you're interested in, study how the field emerged and the thinkers that developed the field.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Like in cybernetics, read Norbert, Norbert Wiener. Read, read the original texts of cybernetics. If you're going to be an evolutionary biologist, for, for the love of God, read on the origin of species deeply. There are so many evolutionary biologists that never actually read Darwin. Mm. Like they're not like that. Like that. That's my only plea for science: is read deeply. Like that's something you learn in the humanities. You learn in the humanities you have to read deeply, and read the original text. Like, don't just read like the plus one article and the Nature article mm-hmm. by some guy who also isn't well read. Yeah you know so read deeply the so if you read deeply the way the ideas evolve um you can also find out where they made mistakes right like but what 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 freud did the logic is he he studied the the logic of the erotic drive and he found it basically ended in in death drive like that 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 the the the, the will the will to become one was was the will to death? Like you want to mm-hmm. annihilate your identity, right? So this is the this is the so recognizing that what you think is negative is actually a positive opening and a liberation, mm-hmm. yeah. right? Because and and it's it's a liber and you can finally speak freely, deeply speak freely because so many people don't speak. We all know we all know that in romantic relationships we. We we design our speech so that it keeps the other. Like mm-hmm. we design a, like we design our speech in such a way as that we maintain a certain idealization,
2: mm-hmm.
1: not for truth. But if you if but so but imagine imagine you've understood this imagine you've integrated this, mm-hmm. and you can speak your truth. Then there's the possibility for real relationship.
0: Right, they optimize mostly for, for comfort or or yes. even like state like stasis. Like the yes. it's a it's a paradox because because since everything is constantly unfolding and changing, the desire to, like grab something and have some security for just a fucking second. It's like it's like please, <laughs> yeah. So
1: uh... <laughs> no, you don't get it. Yeah, like that, that's 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 the thing. That's the thing. And 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 nowhere nowhere more fiercely than in sexuality. Yeah. Like if you if, if you wanna if you wanna feel safe if you wanna like if if you think you're a safe and secure person, like immediately think about your closest intimate relationship, and imagine if that person you were to lose that person. Mm-hmm like imagine like it's just a thought experiment is imagine imagine how your identity would react if you lost something very precious to you like how like r- almost run it as a simulation mm-hmm. in your in your own head um because one you are going to lose everything
2: yeah
1: because we're all going to die you know, unless somehow we become immortal,
2: mm-hmm. I don't know.
0: But other every people. every every human that ha- that's ever existed so far, other other people will enjoy your wealth and sleep with your women. <laughs> what? It's the. It's just like um, you can't you can't take the things that you hold dear with you. Like you, oh. you come in alone, you die alone. Boom. Definitely. Yeah. And so, some something
1: something. You know, if you're un- basically, it's to test yourself on your unconscious attachment modes um, and the way in which you're unconsciously eternalizing something mm-hmm. um, instead of seeing it as a, as a process, um, and also sort of seeing. The trick is, and this is a Hegelian trick, is to read the end into the beginning. Mm. So, in other words, if you're aware that the end is present at the beginning, then you can be with the process. Yeah. But if you're spending the entire time pretending that the end isn't there, and you're trying to m- manufacture an eternal thing with no end, mm-hmm. then you're gonna find yourself in illusion and you're gonna find yourself in lies and you're gonna find your for, both to your own self-deception and self-deception of the other.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And it's all gonna fall apart in some mess. And you know where the truth will be? In the speech at the end. Mm-hmm. Then the truth will come out. I had that experience. She probably won't be listening to this with my first girlfriend. My first first girlfriend is like... Shout
0: out to my first girlfriend. We're
1: just going to give her a quick shout out. Definitely. Much love. Uh, But we were together for like two and a half years. And then the speech at the end of the relationship was like where all the truth was. Mm. And I was like... All of this is coming out like I don't even know you,
2: mm-hmm.
1: right? So, like, so that this is what I'm saying is is that that the realize the end is in the beginning,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and to speak truly in the process, and to know that yes, you are a weird one, but you can't become one with the other, and that's okay. It's more about learning how to it's more like how to how to embody dialectics Mm
2: -hmm. yeah
1: like you're embodying the you're embodying the contradiction between the difference and the difference between man and woman is beautiful Mm -hmm. but we don't think it's beautiful anymore
2: yeah We
1: we think it's a problem yeah why
0: don't we think it's beautiful anymore
1: Because we've lost the transcendental metaphysical structure within which man and woman engaged with each other.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. Um, Like humans, the basic psychoanalytic lesson is that instincts, animal instincts, become transcendentalized with humans. So we never just eat. We never just have sex. We never just have a home. It's always transcendentalized. Mm-hmm. Like it—it's it, always within a certain metaphysical horizon, and we—and we blew out the 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 fundamental metaphysical hypotheses of man and woman when we deconstructed religion instead of seeing religion as an evolutionary phenomenon. So, like, that's the weird paradox of evolution and religion. It's not that evolution and religion are in some impossible antagonism. It's that religion itself evolves. Mm -hmm. It's not something you just should deconstruct and then have some bland, flat, scientific utopia, which is not gonna function. Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) uh, It's that the modalities by which we authentically connect to the transcendental have themselves changed in our present moment. Mm -hmm. so religion itself has to evolve and the people who have to build the next evolutionary structures of religion are people who are the most deeply connected to the transcendental states of consciousness Mm. and are not only that crucial not only connected to the transcendental states of consciousness but also that they can integrate it in their embodied being in the world and that they can navigate the most difficult problems in the social field with wisdom uh-huh. so those problems are problems of sexuality, problems of power, problems of money, problems of social irrational conflict.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's well said. Um, Cannell, uh, we've been going for a little over an hour. I wonder if there's any um, if if there are any other topics that feel um untouched or anything else that's top of mind that that we want to cover. Well, I'll just sort of maybe because like we
1: did talk about a lot, maybe I'll just sort of rehash and like sort of maybe give some sort of integrative summary of some of the main points I think are are worth deeper reflection for for those of who who are listening. Yeah, that's great is that science is a method, dialectics is a method of logical form, Um, psychoanalysis is a form of, of knowledge which is also developed through its own method. All of these methods can in principle coexist because they're just ways in which we approach certain problems. So science is a method of trying to understand nature as best as we can. Dialectics is a method of embodying and engaging with the development of logical form. Um, And psychoanalysis is a method of getting in touch with your unconscious. Um, And that all of these methods are, you know, the foundation upon which enormous amounts of, of knowledge and wisdom have been constructed by our civilization. Um, and read the greats. Read the greats. If if you're a young, if you're a young man or woman, interested in anything—biology, philosophy, psychology, physics, whatever it is you're interested in—logic, ethics. Read the greats. Read the originals. Get deeply familiar. Be deeply read. Um, don't um, don't. Just not destroy your mind, but don't um, get caught up in this culture of fast information.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Of you know, of course, there's nothing in. You can go on the social media. Of course, we're all on social media. You know, but it's a. But the way in which Twitter and TikTok and Snapchat and Instagram, the way in which these mediums infiltrate our minds, mm-hmm. can also dumb down our capacity to sit for hours with a deep text. And that go into deep study and, 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 and think for yourself and, and be in deep relationship with the lived body. Um, and,
0: uh, that's it really. I think that covers a lot of what we talked about. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Great recap. Cadell, this has been a pleasure. Yeah. yeah it's good connection. Connect, Looking forward to the next conversation. Likewise, brother. Thank right. you for well, having me on. Yeah, of course. And I'll put all your, um, I'll put all your links so people can follow up and, and see what else you're up to. All right. Cheers, brother. See you, man.